0: All right, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 7 through 17 this morning. I, 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 a couple of weeks ago, being that it was February, the month of love, I wanted to do a little mini-series on that very subject based upon what our bulletin board out front says and, and our sign outside says that, that love is not February 14th, Love is John three sixteen. So I wanted to talk about love isn't, love is. And this morning I want to share with you that love worth having. I want to talk about a love that is worth having. And the Bible tells us that, that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life that is a love worth having but john goes on to say in his little letter uh, a a little bit more about the depth of that love and and what makes it worth having in our lives so if you found in your bible first john Uh, Chapter 2, I want you to look with me at at verses 7 through 17. Let's stand as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord. Read along with me so you know that that what I'm saying is what John said as he wrote this letter to uh, the church. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is still in the darkness even unto now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But... He that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whether he goeth because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for, you, for your name's sake. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because... You have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, because you have known that, uh, that is from the beginning. I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong, and in the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Is in the world the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world, and the world passes away and all the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Father, we ask that you would take the reading of your word and now the preaching of your word and use it to the strengthening of your children. I pray that we would begin to see the love that is worth having that God has bestowed upon all of us. And Lord, as we love you the way you love us, we are are by nature able to love others around us. And so, Father, I pray that you would move me out of the way and hide me behind the cross and let not my word but your word be proclaimed today and may Jesus draw his people to a love worth having. Lord, we thank you for all you do for us. Now, bless this time in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. Love worth having. I hope that you know that God loves you. And because God loves you, it is a love worth having. You know, the word love is an interesting word. It's a demanding word. It's it's a a challenging word. You know, the truth is, there are a few things so universal and yet so challenging. Love for God. Love. But love for God, the most important commandment, says Jesus in, in Mark chapter 12, and the one that both the Old Testament and the New Testament alike portray as the necessity to enjoy God's sustaining favor in one's life. You see, we live in a fallen world. As we do, we are not only uh, going to be confronted by, but often in the company of people who claim to love God, claim to be followers of Jesus, but in fact, they are not. That is nothing new. It is. Uh, it was for certain the case in the early church, and particularly in the church in whom John was writing this letter to, for he spoke much about this. It is for this reason that John went to great lengths to speak to the issue of how that one can know that we know God's love. Remember, John was writing to help these early Christians confront the Gnostic which were the group of heretics of the first few centuries of the church, which claimed that in order to know God, you had to come into this supernatural ability to have secret, mystical knowledge of God and His character. Like those who fell prey to the Gnostics in the first century churches, there are many people today that are still looking for a secret knowledge of who God is. But can I just remind you that there is no secret knowledge? The knowledge of who God is is open to all of us if we will open His word. Even as Satan has tempted Eve, Adam and Eve by the promise of giving them the secret knowledge of God by eating the fruit of the tree, many people today are being lured away from the truth of God's revelation, His scripture with the promise that there is some secret knowledge, some understanding, some deeper meaning, some spiritual enlightenment that we can get if we just follow after the things of the world and not of the things of the Word. But much to the contrary, John says, true Christianity is not what you know as much as it is who you know. True Christianity is not the evidence of having a full head of knowledge, but rather a changed heart. And how do we know that we know Him? Well, John says it is invariably by, by evidence in the way that we live our lives. It is not only that, that we read or what we've read or, or what we've been told, but by the necessity also involved in a personal relationship with God, a relationship which manifests itself out in practical ways in which we live out the Christian life. In verses 1 through 6 of the chapter that we did not read, John already made the point that one of the ways that we know that we know him is by the way that we obey him by the obedience that we we show because it is evident that we know him. And he goes on in in these next verses that we know him if we have his love. Here in chapter 2 in the verses that we've read, John talks about the necessity of God's love as evidence that you and I know him, that we're in relationship with him. He tells us that if we love him, we will grow to be more like him. And my friends, that is a love worth having. So let's just look at a few things, three things that John gives us here in this text. First, in verses 7 through 11, he gives us the priority of love. The priority of love. Love is one of those themes that goes throughout most of the writings of John. As a matter of fact, John, by his character, by his nature, was known as the the guy of love. He, He was known for his love. As a matter of fact, the scripture says of him that he was loved of Jesus. He was the most loved disciple. John had this knowledge of love. He was loved, and therefore he showed love. And as a matter of fact, John, as he would end all of his church services, historians have said that John would remind the church to love one another. Someone once asked John, they said, John, he was in his 90s at this time, and said, John, why is it that of all the things that you know of God and all the time that you spent with Jesus, why is it that you constantly remind the church to love one another? And John apparently looked at them and said, to love one another is to know God. You see, the reality is John understood that that was the evidence that one knows God. Love is one of those uh, themes that John spoke of. Whether it is in his gospel or here in the epistle, love is a reoccurring theme. In these five verses, John draws our attention to three things concerning a love worth having. First of all, in verse 7, he talks about the origin of love. Where did love begin? And and, In verse 7, he reminds us Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you. He says, I'm not writing you something new. I'm not giving you something that you don't already know. But an old one which you have had from the beginning. He is speaking about the origin of this commandment to love. He's not talking about love as something that was old or something that is new. He's talking about the knowledge, the origin of where love came from. Beginning in the earliest books of the Old Testament, God himself desired of his people that they would love him and love others. For the Jew, this was the part of the most basic confession of faith, known as the Shema. Uh, every devout jew would repeat deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 anybody remember what those are anybody know uh, take to memory what deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 says well you can find it in the new testament as well you don't have to just memorize it from there but here's what it says listen israel the lord our god uh, the lord is one Love the Lord with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18, God instructed his people to simply love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. This commandment was not something new to them. It was as old as Judaism itself. What John was simply saying is, I'm not giving you something new for for today. I'm reminding you of something that God gave us all the way back at the very beginning. He said that we're to love God. As a matter of fact, when Moses came down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, one of those commandments is, love the Lord thy God. It's from the very beginning that we're to love God. The commandments are broken up into two sections. The first part is our love relationship with God. The second part of the commandments is our love relationship with one another. Huh, I wonder if God knew that he did that. Huh, of course he did. It was his beginning thought. I'm going to create a people that are going to love me, and I'm going to love them, and then I'm going to create the same people that are going to love one another. Sin got in the way, but God never stopped doing it. Never stopped intending it. In fact, Jesus repeats the very same words in Mark chapter 12, verse 28, when the scribes came to argue with him about Scripture and asked him, Well, God, or Jesus, if you think you know it all, tell us which is the greatest Scripture. And Jesus simply said, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And he could have stopped there, but that would have only been half of the story. He said the second, just as important as the first, love thy neighbor as thyself. There are no other greater commandments than these. John is simply reiterating what they had already known, what they should have known from knowing their Jewish tradition. From the beginning, love God and love each other. This is the foundation to what it means to know God. Then in verse 80 moves from the origin of love to the operation of love. Once we know where love comes from, we know that it's not something new, but it's something that we've been taught from the very beginning. John goes on in verse 8 to, to remind us of what the operation of love is. Notice that he says again, a new commandment. Now I write unto you which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. John is no doubt referring to what Jesus himself had said in John chapter 13 and verse 34 where Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. Now, the old commandment was love God and love one another, but Jesus said, I give you a new commandment. Uh, He goes on to say, love one another just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, that's not a new commandment. That's the same commandment as before. Mm, But there's a new twist to the commandment. Look again at the last part of what I said. Listen to what I said. Listen to what he says in John 13, 34. You must also love one another as I have loved you. See, Deuteronomy says, love God, love one another. Jesus says, I want you to do it the way I did it, the way I showed you. John, in no doubt, is referring to the fact that Jesus himself was the the, the perfect example of how to love one another. You see, from the very beginning, all those who would follow God had an obligation to love Him and to love others. But Jesus constantly took things to the next level. You see, Jesus didn't want us just to continue to do. He wanted us to grow. He said, listen, if you know that you're to love one another, I want to take you to the next level. I want you to love in a way that you've never loved before did not have to do so much with the decision to love. That's the old commandment. The new commandment had to do with the depth or the amount of love to be shown. The kind of love that we're to show one for another. Well, what kind of love did God show for us through Jesus? Jesus said, I want you to love each other as I loved you. But what does that look like? The new commandment to love is more than a commandment to to be than to do. Be like me, he said. Love like me. One cannot coerce someone into loving someone else. But love emanates itself from who we are, who Christ has made us to be. Even as God is love, if you are filled with his control of his spirit, the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that you will manifest yourself in such a way as the Spirit of God manifests itself. That's why love is to be an undeniable mark of the authentic Christian life. You see, when the Holy Spirit of God is in us and and controlling us and working through us, that, that we're going to behave just like Christ behaved because the same Holy Spirit that was in Him is in us. The same direction that he had is the same direction that we're given. Now the operation of love is found in this. John's idea of love is love in action. In 1 John chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, little children, we must not love in word or in speech, but in deed and in truth. Listen, it's easy to say I love you. It's a whole other thing to show it, to do it. You see, Jesus was simply saying, I want to take you beyond just the mere words of saying I love God, I love the, uh, the world. I want you to show me that you love God. I want you to show me that you're loving one another. And that love cannot be passive. It must be active. It is something that has to be done. It's not something that we can just say. So John then moves on from the operation of love to what is the opposite of love. Now what is the opposite of love? Well, if you look at verses 9 through 11, John changes from from this loving demeanor to, to talking about something that we don't like to talk about, hatred, hate. But we know the opposite of love is hatred. John says one of the ways that you know that you know him is that you love him and you love each other? Conversely, one of the ways that you know that you don't know him, that you don't have the love of the Father in you, is that you hate your brother. Hate here is the in the original language is not the outburst of anger where we get mad at somebody. No, that's not what he's talking about. It's the attitude in which we have grown comfortable with. Yeah, forget about him. Ah, I ain't going to pay attention to them. Yeah. Hey, they made their bed, let them lay in it. It's that kind of attitude that God is talking about here. It's that, that I don't have to worry about my neighbor. I mean, think about it. When, when Cain killed Abel and God said, Hey, Cain, where's your brother Abel? Am I my brother's keeper? Why do I have to keep track of him? I don't care what he's doing. What was that? That was hatred. That was a hatred towards his brother coming out. You see, the Bible says that the kind of love that Jesus shows, the kind of love that John is contrasting here between love and hatred, true love, Christian love, is the kind of love that God has for us. The kind of love that Jesus expressed when he went to the cross. The kind of love that is sacrificial, that is active. There's no room for passivity or inactivity. There is no room to be neutral. We either love others or we hate them. We cannot, according to John, ignore them and at the same time say we love people. It's an impossibility. After all, how can we say that we love others as Jesus loves them and then sit idly by? and watch them go off into hell. How can we, being stewards of the gospel of Christ, say that we love others and yet be content never to share God's love with another person? You see, for John, love is proactive. It takes the initiative. Just like Jesus' love for us took the initiative, and Romans 5, 8 says that while we were yet at odds or enmity with God, God sent His Son into the world, and Jesus died for us. That's taking action. That's proactive. In order to make a friend out of an enemy, Jesus came and He died for His enemies to make us His friend. Then notice He goes on to say in verses 12 through 14, He deals with a process of maturity in that love the process of maturing in that love is found in these verses now in verses 12 through 14 in these three verses John gives us two sets of parallel statements and look at what he says he's addressing three different groups of people in the church in the church and let me give them to you the children who are young in the faith, the, the new believers, not just the kids, but the new believers, the fathers. Now, for the fathers, he's referring to those who have been believers a long time. How many of us have been believers a long time? Raise your hand. A lot of us, we've been believers a long, long time. We're the fathers of the faith. And then there's the young man. The young men are those who are presently carrying the responsibility for the furtherance of the gospel. I mean, what that means is that that's, you know, uh, not the children, not the new believers, not the old-timers that are saying, listen, we're at heaven's doors. But it's that in-between group that says, you know what? We're excited about working and loving the Lord. and We've got the energy. We've got the passion. We've got the desire. Notice that each of these stages of spiritual maturity bring out a love for God. With each group of people, there is a specific thing that John relates to. To the children, he says, to those who are early in their pilgrimage believers, he verily simply states here in these verses that, that they know their sins to be forgiven and that they know the Father. You don't want to know the two basic troubles that new believers have they struggle most with did god forgive my sins is my sins forgiven am i forgiven am i really forgiven am i really made right in christ and the second biggest thing that new believers struggle with who is the father how do i get to know him i mean i came to faith through christ i know who he is but who's the father How do I get to know the Father? How do I get to know God in the way that I need to? John addresses both of these questions in these verses. He tells them that their sins are forgiven, not on the basis of their own works, but rather because of their namesake. Now, it doesn't mean because their name is Andy. (laughs) No, it means because Andy's namesake is Jesus your sins are forgiven because Jesus has forgiven you. Because we have the name of Christ. We are his children. And because we're his children, we have been forgiven by his act. So we as a child of God, we are forgiven. And then he goes on to say uh, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. And he assures us that having had their sins forgiven they know the father because the father has been made known to them now to the fathers of the faith he points back to that which you have already known from the beginning again he says listen those things that you learned as a young christian those things that you carried on through life those things that you have known all of the many, many days that you have walked with Christ. You hang on to those. He wants to remind the rest of the church that there are those who have faithfully walked with Jesus for a long time. One of the beautiful things about our church, on most Sunday mornings anyways, (laughs) is that when I look out over the congregation, I see a diversity. I mean, we've got a stage full of kids at times. We've got a a, a stage full of middle age young people. And then we've got a a, a stage full of the mature saints in the Lord. I want to speak to you senior adults just for a moment. While many of our senior adults may not realize it, I want you to understand that your presence, your presence on Sunday mornings in activities, coming to care meetings and doing the different things that we do here as a church, your presence speaks volumes. Speaks volumes to the the rest of the congregation. Because what it says to us is that I can trust my God to be faithful because He has been faithful to keep them in the faith all of these years. And they haven't given up. They haven't stopped loving. They haven't stopped serving. They're continuing to show the way. And because of that, I'm encouraged that if I stick with the faith, I too will finish well. And then he writes to the young men, those who are folks who do most of the work that gets done in the gospel. He says, I'm writing to you because you are strong in the Lord. Oh, the Bible says, though we grow weary, hang on to the Lord and he shall renew your strength. We're reminded by those that are that are strong in the Lord. They're, they're going forth, they're, they're plowing new ground, they're making way, they're, they're on the front lines of the battlefield of Christ. God had made them strong so that they can overcome the evil one, Paul or John says. The word of God was and is abiding in them, and that they are winning the war of Christ, that they are continuing in the faith. They're pushing the movement of Christ's gospel through the world. Can I just remind you that in every healthy church, there should be all three groups. Those who have just come to know the Lord, those who are in the prime and fighting the good fight, and those who have carried the torch faithfully for many years, whose lives serve as an example throughout others hang in there my friend it's worth it in the end I've often heard it said that Christianity is only one generation away from extinction because I've heard it said that God doesn't have grandchildren he only has children you see the reality is that We must continue to carry on the faith so that there is a new generation. Let me remind you the theme of our church, the mission statement of our church, is building the church of tomorrow, today, through evangelism, outreach, discipleship, family ministries. My friends, We need to keep the church alive because we want it to continue to be the light in the darkness. But us gray hairs and no hairs are going to exit this place one day. And if we're not doing our part to make sure there's a new generation of young people, then the church will fade away. I I know too many churches right now in our area of where I've talked with pastors that when they look out over their congregation all they have is gray hairs and no hairs and it worries them because they don't see a new generation. We need a new generation. We're thankful for the 13 lives that we baptized into the faith last year. They tell us that there's new believers coming along, young people growing up in the Lord. We must continue the work, continue the moving, the process of maturity. Listen, folks. The church must have young people moving up to, uh, strong people moving up to mature people because they're going on to glory. If we don't have that progression of maturity, then we're going to die in the faith. So John says, listen, I can't talk to you about love if I don't warn you about the perils of this world. See, no father, no mother truly loves their child if they don't tell them about the dangers that await them in this world. God is the same way. He wants us to know, and John wants us to know here, that there are some perils of this world that we need to be aware of. So in verses 15 through 17, he says, whereas we are told to love God and love one another, here we are strongly warned against loving the world and the things of the world. Now, there are always those who say, "Oh, wait a minute, preacher, you're talking in circles. Because listen, didn't the Bible say that we're, God so loved the world that, that we're to love all of the world? And yet, you're saying that we're not to love the world. Well, which is it, preacher? Well, let me tell you. Context is the greatest friend that we have in interpretation. When you're reading scripture, always figure out what is the context in which the words are being spoken. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word world is found there but what does it mean he's not talking about the planet he's not talking about the trees he's not talking about the 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 things of this world he's talking about the inhabitants of this world so the context of that is that he wants to redeem humanity the word humanity is a replacement with the word world so the context of the world is that God loves people enough that he died for them and then in our text here today we find that he tells us that we're not to love this world what does he mean what is the context the world is not people the world is the system of this world it's the materialistic things of this world John is saying listen I'm telling you to be careful not to fall in love with the things of this world because they are dangerous. They will leave you a mess. When John warns us not to love the world nor the things of the world, he's speaking about the materialistic things of the world. John breaks it down, the love of the world, in three categories here in verses 16. He says there is the lust of the flesh. Now that's the craving of sinful man. These are the desires that come from our human desires which are shaped by the world and the spirit of this age. You see, the lust of the flesh is desiring the things of the world, the the desires of, uh, of the physical of the world following the the world in the spirit of this age rather than the spirit of the living God that dwells within us. Can I just remind you that when any of us seek after the the lust of the flesh, there is a war that rages within our spirit because the spirit of God says to us, that is not what you're to be lusting after. You ought to be lusting after me. You ought to be following me, seeking me, wanting me, not the things of this world. These types of desires are manifested when we seek first the things of this world rather than seeking first the kingdom of God. You see, it's seeking first our own desires, our own wants, instead of that of our spiritual needs. Whenever we're longing for the world, more than we long for the Word, we're going to be caught up in the lust of the flesh. If that weren't bad enough, he says, be careful, lies, what you see. For he says, there is the lust of the eyes. Read, materialism, envy, all of these strong desires come from what we see. And by the way, the devil and and the world system has learned that very, very well. Now, we can't pick up a magazine without reading an article filled with advertisements. As a matter of fact, you can't get on the Internet and and look up anything without a row of advertisements coming up, wanting you to see what you're missing. As a matter of fact, you can't drive down the road without seeing a billboard that says, if you don't have this in your life, you're missing out on the best of life. You see, the world system has realized that what we see with our eyes is what we desire. The television, uh, it, it's so used to, to indoctrinate our minds with all the things of this world and, and, and all of its allurements and all of its pleasures. See, the lust of the eyes appeals to our carnal nature rather than our new nature that we have in Christ. You see, the thing is, if we're seeing more of the world than we're spending time seeing in the Word, then we're going to be drawn into the world more than we're going to be drawn into the Word. You see, our eyes need to be looking at the words from the Word so that the things that we see in the world won't be so attractive to us anymore. But if we're not spending enough time with our eyes in the Word, we're going to be attracted to the things of this world. The third that he says is the pride of life. There's the pride or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and then the pride of life. Speaking of the pride of one's lifestyle, John is speaking to the fact that for those who boast about what you have done. Look at the Fortune 500 company that I built Look at the app that I created. Look at the amount of uh, of possessions that I have. You probably own two or three storage buildings then. Yeah, that's what we do with our stuff. Store it so we can go buy more stuff so we can store it. The pride of life is that that it's like the the fellow I worked with many years ago. His phrase for working 40 hours of overtime in a pay period was, the one who has the most toys at the end wins. No. No. It's the one who has Christ at the end that wins. The things of this world come and go. Christ is forever. The pride of life is not what you and I have done. It's not what you and I have. It's not what you and I have possessed. It's what Jesus has done for us. The desire to get more at any cost, considering the pride of life that it must have took for Judas to sell out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But I wonder, I wonder what price we sold them out for. Maybe we didn't even get as much as that. Maybe we took a bargain rate. The pride of life says, I gotta get it. I gotta, I only go around once, I gotta get all that I can. But what does the Bible say? It's not what we store up here on earth that matters. He said, store up your treasures in heaven because up there you're going to have them for eternity. Rust isn't going to bother them, thieves aren't going to steal them, and and moss aren't going to carry them away. What we put up there will last an eternity. What we put into this world will only last a lifetime. We talked about this in our Thursday Bible study in Ecclesiastes, and Solomon said, man, what a foolish life I've lived. I've earned, and I've worked, and I've labored, and I've served, and I've earned, and I've got this pile of wealth, and some idiot behind me is going to get it all. And for his case, it was exactly it. Rehoboam, the idiot, got his all of his wealth and squandered it. You see, the pride of life will leave us lacking. There's always been and always will be those even in the church whose loyalties are divided, whose hearts are not totally sold out for God. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10 comes to mind when Paul said for Demas has deserted me because he loved the present world more than God. He's gone. He left it all behind. The one who walks in the light, the one who's growing in their spiritual maturity, the one who walks in the light and has fellowship with God and his people is not possessed by the love of this world. Rather, They are possessed by the love of God. So I want to close with asking a few questions. So if you haven't paid attention, pay attention. I want you to listen to these questions. Where is your love this morning? Do you love the world? Or do you love the Lord? What do you really? You don't have to answer. You don't even have to raise your hands. You don't have to say a word. Because I want you to understand something. Your life has already spoken for you. How we live answers those questions. Do you love Jesus this morning? I mean, really love him enough to abandon all the things of this world? To say, hear my Lord, send me. Hear my Lord, use me. Do you love others enough that you'll say, Lord, give me someone? That I can tell about you today. Do you have this love that is worth having? If not, what are you willing to do this morning? to surrender are you willing to confess sound room if you'd put some music ready for me are you willing to say Lord it's not I but you Lord let my life show others that I love you let my life show others that I love them What are you willing to do to get a love that's worth having? For God so loved you that he died just for you. Are you willing to love him with that same kind of love? With every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just stand to your feet? And I want to pray for you. If you need to come to the altar this morning, great. I'll I'll pray with you or others will. It's important. If you need to deal with God right there, but let me just say to you, whatever you do today, don't keep it to yourself. Let the love of the Lord be revealed in and through you. Father, as we come to the conclusion of the question. Do I love Jesus do I love others let my life so be the answer let it not be with word but with deed let it not be a bunch of noise let it be with sincerity may it be O oh Lord that the world around us would experience our love. Would it be, O Lord, today that if there are some that are not sold out to you, Lord, today they would abandon all for the cause of Christ and say, let your love flow through. so that others would see Jesus in me. Now, O Lord, I pray, speak to your people in only the way that the Spirit of God can. Draw them close to you, O Lord, and let the Spirit minister to them, I pray. In Jesus' name. you're here this morning.